Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, Episode 40. This one's entitled, Fire in the Sky, Tunguska at 100. Other stories in this episode include, An Arab has been found in a Danish Iron Age grave, and another one from archaeology. Archaeologists dig up Washington's boyhood home. The cold sore virus secret has been revealed, and diamonds hint at earliest life. From technology comes the storm warning for cloud computing and at the damn interesting website eugenics and you. And from archaeology and music comes the story from the National Geographic about Stone Age art caves that may have been concert halls. There's a short biography of Nikolai Tesla and the story about a blind climber who sees with his tongue. From the Australia Files, the Pinnacles Desert in Western Australia. There are the usual word origins story, and of course, the World Wide Weird.
Our first story this week comes from the news.nationalgeographic.com website and it's an article by James Owen and it's entitled Arab Found in Danish Iron Age Grave. An ancient Dane with Arabian genes is part of a DNA study that suggests Scandinavians of 2,000 years ago were more genetically diverse than today. Researchers say the Iron Age man may have been a soldier serving on the Roman Empire's northern frontier or a descendant of female slaves transported from the Middle East. The Roman Empire at the time stretched as far as the Middle East while Roman legions were based as far north as the River Elbe in northern Germany. The study analysed 18 well-preserved bodies from two burial sites, dating from 0 to AD 400 in eastern Denmark. The sites were originally excavated some 20 years ago. Mitochondrial DNA, which provides a genetic record of an individual's maternal ancestry, was taken from teeth by a team led by Linnier Melchior of the Institute of Forensic Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. One skeleton had a type of DNA signature known as a haplogroup closely associated with the Arabian Peninsula according to Melchior. It's especially found among some Bedouin tribes but it has also been found in the southern part of Europe the researchers said. The skeleton came from an Iron Age site on the southern part of the island of Zealand. The bodies likely belonged to poor farmers, the team said. Other unusual haplogroups were identified, including one representing a prehistoric European lineage, which today is found in only about 2% of Danes, Melchior said. It may have been one of the ancient Nordic types, which has been diluted by later immigrations from Scandinavia and Germany, she said. In contrast, the other burial site contained bodies with a genetic signature common to most Scandinavians, the study found. They were typically of a Nordic type and the diversity is lower, Melchior said. This group consisted mainly of women and was distinguished by rich grave goods, including finely made rings, necklaces and ornate hairpins. You can see they were dressed up very nicely with beautiful jewellery before being buried, Melchior said. The burials are thought to represent the elite of society, people the researchers think arrived from elsewhere in Scandinavia. The findings published in November in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology are part of a wider study that suggests Denmark's ancient populations were much more diverse genetically than they are today. Reliable DNA results have been obtained for 56 individuals from the late Stone Age through medieval times, Melchior said. At all the sites we have investigated in Denmark, we have found rare genetic types and types that are not common or present in Europe today, she said. When we go back in time, we find much higher diversity, Melchior added. It was quite surprising that the lowest diversity was found among Danes of the present day. One possible explanation put forward by the team is that certain groups were more vulnerable than others to medieval outbreaks of bubonic plague, most notably the Black Death, 
which alone wiped out about a third of the European population between 1347 and 1351. Such a theory has been proposed by another recent study, which recorded a similar loss of genetic diversity in English people. Researchers, including Russ Holzel of the School of Biological and Biomedical Sciences at Durham University in the UK, found that during the medieval period, one particular haplogroup in England became much more widespread. This may reflect the fact that families who shared certain genes survived the plague much better than others, said Holzel, who was not involved in the Danish study. Plague, given the timing, seems a strong candidate, though it isn't the only one, he said. Keeping with the theme of archaeology for the moment, this article comes from the news.yahoo.com website. Archaeologists dig up Washington's boyhood home. George Washington's boyhood home has finally been excavated in a project that may shed light on the formative years of the first US president, archaeologists said on Wednesday. They say they will try to reconstruct the clapboard farmhouse where the family moved in 1738 when Washington was six years old. Earlier attempts to find the remains of the house at Ferry Farm near Fredericksburg, Virginia had failed. David Maraca, Director of Archaeology for the George Washington Foundation, which owns the property 50 miles south of Washington DC, said the foundations of the house and cellars are clearly genuine. This is it. This is the site of the house where George Washington grew up, Maraca said in a statement. If George Washington did indeed chop down a cherry tree, as generations of Americans have believed, this is where it happened, added Philip Levi, Associate Professor of History at the University of South Florida. There is little actual documentary evidence of Washington's formative years. What we see at this site is the best available window into the setting that nurtured the father of our country. The work, paid for by the State of Virginia and various private foundations, as well as the National Geographic Society, has turned up many artefacts. These include pieces of the house's ceiling and painted walls, fragments of 18th century pottery, wig curlers and toothbrush handles made of bone. The land was ploughed in the 19th century, so some of the objects we've found are in small pieces, Maraca said. We do have larger objects, part of a tea set that probably belonged to George's mother, Mary Ball Washington, wine bottles, knives, forks and ten pieces of a group of small figurines that might have stood on a mantle. Most of the wood used to build the original farmhouse was plundered to build later structures or destroyed during the Civil War. As he grew up, the young George Washington farmed tobacco, wheat and corn. On these fields, George transitioned from boyhood to manhood. He decided to learn surveying, worked at making social contacts and contemplated joining the British Navy until his mother vetoed the idea, Maracas said. If she had let him go, the future of our country would have been very different. 
1753, Washington moved to his estate on the Potomac River at Mount Vernon, 15 miles south of the city that bears his name. Now a story from medicine. This comes from the bbc.co.uk website, Health Section. The cold sore virus secret has been revealed. The secret of how the cold sore virus manages to persist for a lifetime in the human body may have been cracked by US scientists. The herpes simplex virus 1, or HSV1, can lie dormant in facial nerves, emerging periodically to cause sores. A Duke University Medical Centre team may have uncovered how it can reactivate itself from a dormant state. The finding published in the journal Nature could eventually lead to new treatments. When fighting a virus, the immune system relies heavily on the protein chemicals produced by the virus, which it uses to help mark it for destruction. Herpes viruses manage to evade the immune system by shutting down production of these proteins completely and remaining in this state for long periods before starting to replicate again. This is why patients, once infected, have occasional flare-ups of cold sores or genital herpes and can never get rid of the infection completely. However, there is one thing that HSV1 does produce, the precise role of which has puzzled scientists for some years. It is a type of RNA, a single strand of genetic information copied from the DNA of the virus. In other viruses, these RNAs make proteins that are useful to the virus, but in herpes, this was not the case. The Duke University team suspected that it somehow helped to keep the virus in its dormant state, and studied what happened to these latent RNAs in mice. They found they were broken down into even smaller strands called microRNAs, and these appeared to block the production of proteins which reactivated the virus. Effectively, they were helping keep the virus in its dormant state. Professor Brian Cullen, who led the research, said, We have provided a molecular understanding of how HSV1 hides and then switches back and forth between the latent and active phases. He said a drug based on blocking these microRNAs could, in theory, wake up all the viruses, making them vulnerable to antiviral therapy and raising the possibility of a cure for herpes. Professor Roger Everett, a Medical Research Council virologist based in Glasgow, said the research represented a step forward in a long-standing problem in the field. The next step, he said, would be to see what happened in an animal using a virus engineered to block production of these RNAs. Diamonds are forever They are all I need Please me, they can stimulate and tease me, 
And the following article by Jonathan Fills comes from the bbc.co.uk website as well, and it's entitled Diamonds Hint at Earliest Life. Tiny slivers of diamond forged on an infant earth may contain the earliest traces of life, a study has shown. Analysis of the crystals show they contain a form of carbon often associated with plants and bacteria. The rare gems were found inside zircon crystals, formed a few hundred million years after the earth came into being. Writing in the journal Nature, the researchers caution that their results are not definitive proof of early life, but do not exclude the possibility. We're all a little sceptical, said Dr Martin Whitehouse of the Swedish Museum of Natural History and one of the authors of the paper. If the carbon was derived from primitive organisms, it would push back the date of life appearing on Earth by around 500 million years to beyond 4.25 billion years ago. The Earth itself is just 4.6 billion years old. When you look at the carbon isotopes, they could be interpreted as biogenic because we know that biologic processes do generate light carbon isotopes. But of course there are other processes that can do that, Dr Whitehouse told the BBC News. Other possibilities include chemical reactions involving carbon oxides or even the material being delivered from space by meteorites. However, some observers have raised the possibility that the diamonds may be contamination introduced during polishing of the zircons. If you look at the photos they present, you always see these diamonds sat in cracks and fissures and cavities, Professor Minnick Rossing of the University of Copenhagen told BBC News. If they were original features, he said, you would expect at least some to be embedded within the structure of the crystals. There is always fear that they might actually not be primary. However, Dr Rossing explained, the possibility that the signatures were from early life was tantalising. The tiny zircon crystals, just 0.3 millimetres across, were found in the Jack Hills of Western Australia. They are the tough remnants of ancient rocks that have long since disappeared. We don't have the rocks. These zircons are just little fragments of something that was broken up, weathered and redeposited as sediments, explained Dr Whitehouse. Radioactive dating has suggested that some of the crystals formed as far back as 4.4 billion years ago. Scientists describe this phase in Earth history as the Hadean, and it has long been thought that it would be impossible for life to begin at this time because of the inhospitable conditions on the young planet. But the Jack Hill zircons have begun to cast doubt on this theory. Earlier work raised the intriguing possibility that the infant Earth would have been cooler and wetter than previously thought, as the crystals show evidence of growing out of a low-temperature magma that had been in contact with water. 
the new analysis of the diamond and graphite inclusions in the crystals could lend further weight to this theory. I think there is an interesting possibility here, said Dr Whitehouse. The scientists analysed 22 graphite and diamond inclusions in 18 zircon crystals. The results showed that the capsules had unusual levels of a light form or isotope of carbon known as carbon-12. The most common way to form light carbon on the modern Earth is photosynthesis, explained Dr Alexander Nemchim of the Curtin University of Technology in Australia and another author of the paper. During this process, organisms preferentially extract light carbon, leaving heavier forms in the atmosphere. When they die, they preserve that signature, he said. The results of the team's experiments show that the carbon inclusions have a range of isotopes, which suggested, they said, that the carbon reservoir was heterogeneous. This would then have had to be buried deep inside the earth to generate the extreme pressures required to turn it into a diamond. If this stuff was life, which then would have presumably formed on the surface, you do then need a process to take it down to something like 150 kilometres or 200 kilometres, said Dr Whitehouse. On the modern Earth, crust is recycled at depth in so-called subduction zones, such as those found along the edges of the Pacific Ocean. Here, cool, dense oceanic crust plunges under the buoyant and long-lived continental crust, Previous work on the diamonds supports the notion that similar processes were occurring on the Hadean Earth. But not all scientists agree. Instead they suggest that the early crust was relatively stable. Either way, Dr Whitehouse does not believe that this rules out a biogenic origin for the carbon. All this tells you is that there could have been a process that puts things down to 200 kilometres, he said. There may have been other things happening that we don't know about. However, the team readily admit that the conclusion is not definitive. Currently what is thought to be the oldest signature of life by some, dated at around 3.7 billion years old, was discovered by Professor Rossing in an area of intensely deformed rocks in West Greenland, known as the Isua Belt. Here, chemical traces again suggest the presence of photosynthetic life forms. But crucially, the signature is seen in a complete sequence of rocks, rather than isolated crystals. This gives geologists clues about the environment in which the rocks were laid down, and whether or not they could feasibly have contained life. The problem with the Jack Hills is that we don't have the rock, admits Dr Whitehouse. The carbon isotopes alone are not a distinct biosignature. As a result, they have suggested other possibilities for the origin of the carbon, including inorganic chemical reactions, similar to those that take place in the catalytic converter of a car. Professor Rossing believes that this is the most likely explanation. He points to the range of carbon values that were found in the inclusions. That to me is completely the opposite of a biological signature, he said. That's the signature of some chemistry, a fractionation process or something. Photosynthesis, he explained, would produce constant values for the carbon isotope ratios. Another possibility the team suggests is that the carbon came from so-called chondritic meteorites, which also have a similar chemical signature. 
This theory is appealing as the Hadean is thought to have ended roughly 3.8 billion years ago, with a period of intense bombardment believed by some to have initiated the emergence of life on Earth. However, according to Professor Rossing, if the diamonds and zircons are extraterrestrial, it undermines every other theory related to the zircons, including the possibility of a cooler, more habitable early Earth. If this is the case, then every other argument about these zircons falls apart, he said. Then we don't know anything. Now to our lead story for this episode. This is from the bbc.co.uk website and it's written by Paul Rincon. Fire in the Sky, Tunguska at 100. At 7.17am on the 30th of June 1908, an immense explosion tore through the forest of central Siberia. Some 80 million trees were flattened over an area of 2,000 square kilometres, near the Tunguska River. The blast was 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and generated a shockwave that knocked people to the ground 60 kilometres from the epicentre. The cause was an asteroid or comet, just a few tens of metres across, which detonated 5 to 10 kilometres above the ground, a hundred years ago today. Eyewitnesses recalled a brilliant fireball resembling a flying star ploughing across the cloudless June sky at an oblique angle. The plume of hot dust trailing the fireball gave rise to descriptions of a pillar of fire which was quickly replaced by a giant cloud of black smoke rising over the horizon. The sky split in two and fire appeared high and wide over the forest. The split in the sky grew larger, and the entire northern side was covered with fire, one local remembered. At that moment I became so hot that I couldn't bear it, as if my shirt was on fire. I wanted to tear off my shirt and throw it down, but then the sky slammed shut. A strong thump sounded, and I was thrown a few yards. This eyewitness was lucky, but an elderly hunter, who was much closer to the explosion, died after being flung against a tree by the blast. That the airburst did not cause more casualties was in large part due to the remoteness of the area. To many, this event, the biggest space impact of modern times, serves as a reminder of the continuing threat posed to our planet by objects from space. If the Tunguska impactor had exploded over a major city such as London, the death toll would have been up in the millions. Everything within the M25 would have been wiped out, 
Dr Mark Bailey, director of the Amarg Observatory in Northern Ireland, told BBC News. The effects of Tunguska were not limited to Siberia. In London, it was possible to read newspapers and play cricket outdoors at midnight. This is now thought to have been due to sunlight scattered by dust from the fireball's plume. The Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik visited the region in 1921, interviewed local eyewitnesses and soon realised that a meteorite must have been the cause. He persuaded the Russian authorities to fund an expedition to the region in 1927, during which he was able to explore the vast zones of fallen trees. An aerial survey was carried out in 1938, revealing how the flattened trees were angled away from the epicentre of the explosion over a 50-kilometre-wide zone, which formed a butterfly shape. Trees at the epicentre were charred and stripped of their branches and bark, but were left standing, which would lead to them being coined telegraph poles. Some researchers think that a comet would have been too fragile to have caused the Tunguska event, and that an asteroid is therefore the most likely candidate. But Mark Bailey thinks some comets could contain chunks of tough material that could survive the plunge through the atmosphere. Indeed, one theory proposes that the Tunguska object was a fragment of Comet Enki. This ball of ice and dust is responsible for a meteor shower called the Beta Taurids, which cascade into Earth's atmosphere in late June and July, the time of the Tunguska event. The absence of any crater connected with the Tunguska event has left the door open for some outlandish alternatives to the meteorite theory. A lump of antimatter, a colliding black hole and inevitably an exploding alien spaceship have all been proposed as the possible source of the blast. But in 2007, Giuseppe Longo from the University of Bologna in Italy and his colleagues suggested they might have found something Leonid Kulik had missed all those years ago. Lake Chico does not appear on any maps of the area made before 1908. It also happens to lie northwest-west of the epicentre on the general path taken by the impactor as it plummeted to earth. To Dr Longo, a radar signal from beneath the lake is suggestive of a dense object, possibly part of the Tunguska meteorite buried about 10 metres down. The team plans to conduct an expedition to the area in 2009 to investigate this possibility. We have no positive proof it is an impact crater. We have come to this conclusion about Lake Chico through the negation of other hypotheses, Dr Longo told BBC News last year. But other researchers, including Gareth Collins and Phil Bland of the Imperial College London, cast doubt on the idea Lake Chico has anything to do with the Tunguska event. They point to trees older than a hundred years which are still standing around the rim of the lake and they say should have been levelled by the impact and the features of the lake itself which the researchers argue are inconsistent with an impact origin. 100 years on the Tunguska event remains a vibrant area for study especially in Russia. Last week, researchers gathered in Moscow for a scientific conference arranged to coincide with the anniversary. 
Topics on the agenda were the continuing search for pieces of the space rock, the comet versus asteroid debate, and the relationship of the event to the Beta Taurid meteor shower. Dr Longo and colleagues presented a new treefall map, which they say is suggestive of two separate objects exploding in the atmosphere over Tunguska on the 30th of June. The conference also heard presentations on other historic and prehistoric comet impacts and current strategies for tackling an asteroid headed for Earth. An asteroid on the order of one kilometre in diameter hits the Earth roughly once every 100,000 years. Space rocks about 10 metres across, roughly the size of the Tunguska object, are thought to hit our planet about once every 3,000 years. But Mark Bailey suspects they might be more frequent than that. He has investigated another event in 1930, known as the Brazilian Tunguska. This little-known event was apparently caused by three large meteorites in the upper reaches of the Amazon. The fires it caused continued uninterrupted for weeks and depopulated hundreds of kilometres of jungle. And in June 2002, US military satellites detected an explosion in the Earth's atmosphere with the energy of 12 kilotons of explosive. The event has been attributed to an asteroid which remained undetected as it approached our planet and plummeted through the atmosphere. The International Space Guard Survey Program has been working to identify the near-Earth objects larger than one kilometre. This class of object could cause a nuclear winter if one were to strike the planet, possibly threatening civilization. Objects the size of the one that caused the Tunguska impact are too small to be seen by present-day surveys. But there is no guarantee the next object will explode over the sea or a sparsely populated wilderness. This raises an obvious question. How prepared are we for the next one? Dr. Richard Crowther is head of the United Nations Near-Earth Object Program, or NEO-NEO for short. He told the BBC News website, Tunguska reminds us that these impact events have occurred in the relatively recent past. The surveys suggest that objects of this size are numerous enough to anticipate similar events in the relatively near future. Many observers are concerned by what they regard as a lack of action to counter the threat posed by near-Earth asteroids. California-based space advocacy group, the Planetary Society, recently awarded an Atlanta-based aerospace company, $50,000, to design a spacecraft which could rendezvous with and track the path of the asteroid 99942 Apophis. In 2029, this 270-metre-wide chunk of cosmic debris will closely approach the Earth. So close, in fact, it will be visible to the naked eye. If this primordial behemoth passes through a precise region in space, or keyhole, several hundred metres wide during this pass, it will strike Earth in 2036. The Planetary Society initiated its tagging mission because it says... Earth-based observations might not be sufficient to rule out an impact in 2036. There are several technologies that could be used currently to tackle an asteroid heading on a collision course with Earth. One proposal is to use nuclear weapons to completely vaporise the object. 
another is to use a spacecraft to push the asteroid off course. This would involve a craft either slowing down or speeding up the object to ensure that it misses its appointment with the Earth's surface. If for some reason the asteroid is not spotted in time or the deflection mission arrives at its target too late, it might be necessary to nudge the space rock just enough so that it strikes the ocean or a remote, thinly populated area on Earth. Dr Crowther, who is based at the UK's Science and Technology Facilities Control Council, or the STFC, comments that NEOs do not recognise national boundaries. For this reason, among others, he said, it was important that any policy framework established to counter the asteroid threat should encourage nations to work together to share data, expertise and resources to assess and mitigate the risk of a future impact. At this point I'd just like to remind you about the other podcast I'm doing at the moment called Mysteries Abound. That podcast has now been listed in iTunes, so if you go to your iTunes store and type in Mysteries Abound, that's Mysteries Abound as two words, it'll come up in the podcast section of the iTunes store. Episode 2 had these four stories. Moddy Do of Peel Castle, which is a black dog story. The Rosslyn Chapel, a legacy and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And from the unmuseum.website, a little article about Hitler targets New York. Episode 1 had three stories. One was about Easter Island, the other was about the history of finding the coelacanth, and the lines of Nazca in South America. So remember, it is now in iTunes, and if you'd like to listen to it, please do. Last week I had a grand total of one download, and this week so far I'm up to four, so that's a massive improvement. So if you're interested in mystery stories, and these stories take more of a factual slant rather than the obscure slant that some mystery stories can take, please consider the podcast. Mysteries abound, now on iTunes and TalkShoe.
Our mystery story for this episode comes from the discovermagazine.com website and it's entitled The Blind Climber Who Sees With His Tongue. And this is more along the lines of a mystery to do with the human body rather than the conventional mystery stories. A wiry man in his late 30s hangs near the top of a 40-foot wall, the toes of his climbing shoes barely gripping the sheer face. He clings with his left hand and pauses, swinging his right arm to the side, loosening the muscles. Then he raises his head and lunges, thrusting his right hand above him and catching a rock hold with his fingertips. With a few more moves he arrives at the top. Under normal circumstances this extreme rock climber would be worth watching. But what makes his effort even more remarkable is that he happens to be blind. Born with retinoscosis, a rare disease akin to macular degeneration, Eric Weihenmayer was sightless by the age of 13. Even so, he continued to pursue his dream of mountaineering, and he succeeded. In 2001, he became the first, and to date only, blind climber to summit Mount Everest. Today he is climbing with the aid of a tool that allows him to see in a new way, with his tongue. In normal vision, light hitting the retina provokes electrical impulses that the brain translates into images. What the tool, called the brain port, does is convert light into electrical impulses that stimulate the tongue instead of the retina. With more tactile nerve endings than any other part of the body except the lips, the tongue can discriminate two points spaced less than a millimetre apart. That degree of resolution is far beyond what the current brain port array, with only 611 electrodes, provides. But tests have shown the brain port delivers enough information for users like Eric to navigate with. Climbing, Eric calls out to his partner. He places the device in his mouth, raises his head and surveys the wall before him. Electrical impulses from the brain port become to him a tactile image that I'm interpreting in space. Eric reaches for a handheld slider that controls the zoom level and the field of view of the brain port so that he can see one or two rock climbing holes on the wall, some two to three feet above him. Then he slowly and deliberately raises his right hand, reaches up and grabs hold, and begins to pull himself up the wall. His feet secure, he hangs for a moment adjusts the zoom again, then tentatively puts his hand out and above him again, this time missing the hold by half a foot. Judging the distance of an object in space is particularly difficult even with the device, Eric says. To help him figure out how far away something is, he sometimes waves his hand, an object of known size and distance in front of himself first to get a sense of scale via the brain port array. This feedback helps him assess the distance of his next rock climbing hold. Testing the brain port, Eric says, involves learning to climb in a new, different way. I'm learning another language in the same way someone would be learning Braille or French for the first time. I'm figuring out how to map it spatially. The challenges are significant. The brain port provides information in two dimensions, like a line drawing on a piece of paper, 
But the user's brain must learn to translate this information into things like perspective, dimension and location in space. When Eric first used the brain port, the images in his brain appeared as unidentifiable shapes and lines. But over time, through practice, his brain adapted, eventually translating the tactile sensations into recognisable patterns and symbols. Eric has experimented with the tool at his home in Golden, Colorado. He could find and grab a coffee cup placed on the centre island in his kitchen, play soccer with his daughter Emma in their large downstairs playroom, kicking the ball back and forth over some 15 feet, playing rock-paper-scissors and compete in a game of tic-tac-toe by identifying X's and zeros on paper mounted on an easel. Later, the two moved out to the snowy front yard to play hide-and-seek. Eventually, Eric could detect Emma's movement as well as locate a snowman. Outdoor environments remain particularly challenging, though. Outside, shadows create lines which appear on the tongue as objects in space, Eric says. For sighted people, the eyes and the brain quickly make adjustments. But the brain port doesn't always keep pace with the shadows, and one has to learn to interpret these situations and contexts. Paul Bakirita, the co-creator of the system Way and Mayer is testing, challenged conventional wisdom when he proposed that we see with the brain and not with the eyes. He insisted that the brain was flexible enough to learn to interpret data coming in on a different kind of channel. Bakirita died in 2006, but YCAB, the company he co-founded in Middleton, Wisconsin in 1998, continues to work on devices based on the idea that one sense can substitute for another. By 2004, YCAB had gained support for its research from the National Eye Institute, one of the federal agencies of the National Institutes of Health. YCAB intends to create a BrainPort vision device for consumers, and over time the company has made it much less cumbersome. The prototype Eric first worked with in 2003 was bulky, comprising a webcam with a fixed field of view and a shoebox full of hardware that drove a basic 144 electrode array, all connected and run through a laptop computer. The current BrainPort prototype includes hardware contained in a belt-mounted 6x6x4-inch box, three sensitive cameras with a 90-degree field of view, and user-operated zoom and contrast control. Still, despite significant improvements in size and portability, the current prototype is not cosmetically appealing or portable enough for everyday use. YCAB plans eventually to integrate micro-cameras and microprocessors into eyeglass frames. A dental appliance will incorporate the dung display, allowing the user to touch the display intentionally with the tongue, but also to pull it away and talk. Low-power radio frequency transceivers will link the cameras, processors and tongue arrays. Later on, wireless technology will connect these elements. Other applications for the brain port, including assisting military divers in challenging low-light and no-light search and rescue operations, says Rich Hogel, YCAB Director of Product Development. Imagine that you're floating in a dense brown fog in daytime, and visibility is such that there's no up, 
down, left or right. And now your job is to swim 200 yards in a straight level line. Turn 180 degrees to the left and swim back in a line parallel to the first. If you're off by a few degrees in either direction, or too shallow or too deep, you might miss what you're looking for. Now imagine doing the same thing in the same brown fog at night. In research funded by the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, YCAB researchers used brainport technology to help military divers swim in a straight line in low light and no light conditions. For this project we used a digital compass to provide directional information that was then displayed on the tongue as a tactile pattern, Hogel says. While swimming in the target direction, the diver's eyes and ears were able to remain focused on the operational tasks at hand. Eric Weyenmayer hopes that the device will eventually benefit other members of the blind community, especially those who have never experienced vision. I wonder how great one's learning curve would be if you used this device two hours a day, every day. All of these blobs and circles and lines you would be able to learn and interpret. If you gave it to a blind child, his spatial understanding of the world would be through his tongue. It's a compelling thought. The brain port provides a window into the vast complexity of our senses, Wayne Meyer says. I'm reminded how amazing the brain really is, with its incredible ability to differentiate all this information. It's a trip to be able to look at a hold and reach for it. For me, it's beyond science. It's a kind of vision. And now it's time for Australia Facts. And this article comes from the www.naturebase.net website. And it's a guide to parks and recreation within Australia. And this time we'll be talking about the Pinnacles in the Nambung National Park in Western Australia. The Nambung National Park features beautiful beaches, coastal dune systems, shady groves of tuat trees and low heathland rich in flowering plants. The vegetation bursts into flower from August to October, creating a memorable spectacle for visitors. In the midst of this diversity is one of Australia's most fascinating areas, the Pinnacles Desert, one of Australia's best-known landscapes. Here, thousands of huge limestone pillars rise from the shifting yellow sands, resembling a landscape from a science fiction movie. The Pinnacles Desert remained relatively unknown until the late 1960s, when the Department of Lands and Surveys agreed to add the area to the already existing National Park, which had been established in 1956. Today the park is visited by approximately 150,000 visitors from all over the world each year. 
In the Pinnacles Desert, right in the heart of the Nambung National Park, thousands of huge limestone pillars rise out of a stark landscape of yellow sand. In places they reach up to three and a half metres tall. Some are jagged, sharp-edged columns rising to a point, while others resemble tombstones. The raw material for the limestone of the Pinnacles came from seashells in an earlier epoch rich in marine life. These shells were broken down into lime-rich sands, which were brought ashore by waves and then carried inland by the wind to form high, mobile dunes. Three old systems of sand dunes run parallel to the West Australian coast, marking ancient shorelines. The oldest of these, known as the Spearwood Dune System, is characterised by yellow or brownish sands. In winter, rain, which is slightly acidic, dissolves small amounts of calcium carbonate as it percolates down through the sand. As the dune dries out during summer, this is precipitated as a cement around grains of sand in the lower levels of the dunes, binding them together and eventually producing a hard limestone rock, known as Tamala limestone. At the same time, vegetation that became established on the surface aided this process. Plant roots stabilise the surface and encourage a more acidic layer of soil and humus to develop over the remaining quartz sand. The acidic soil accelerated the leaching process and a hard layer of calcrete formed over the softer limestone below. Cracks which formed in the calcrete layer were exploited by plant roots. When water seeped down along these channels, the softer limestone beneath was slowly leached away and the channels gradually filled with quartz sand. This subsurface erosion continued until only the most resilient columns remained. The pinnacles, then, are the eroded remnants of the formerly thick bed of limestone. As bushfires denuded the higher areas, southwesterly winds carried away the loose quartz sands and left these limestone pillars standing up to three and a half metres high. Although the formation of the pinnacles would have taken many thousands of years, they were probably only exposed in quite recent times. Aboriginal artefacts at least 6,000 years old have been found in the Pinnacles Desert, despite no recent evidence of Aboriginal occupation. This tends to suggest that the Pinnacles were exposed about 6,000 years ago and then covered up by shifting sands before being exposed again in the last few hundred years. This process can be seen in action today with the predominantly southerly winds uncovering pinnacles in the northern part of the Pinnacles Desert, but covering those in the south. Over time, the limestone spires will no doubt be covered again by other sand drifts and the cycle repeated, creating weird and wonderful shapes over and over again.
And now, from thedaminteresting.com, Eugenics and You. And this was written by Alan Bellows on May 14, 2008. When Charles Darwin published his groundbreaking theory of natural selection in 1859, it was received by the public with considerable vexation. Although the esteemed naturalist had been kind enough to explain his theory using mounds of logic and evidence, he lacked the good manners to incorporate the reader's preconceived notions of the universe. Nevertheless, many men of science were drawn to the elegant hypothesis, and they found it pregnant with intriguing corollaries. One of these was the phenomenon Darwin referred to as artificial selection. The centuries-old process of selectively breeding domestic animals to magnify desirable traits. This, he explained, was the same mechanism as natural selection, merely accelerated by human influence. In 1865, Darwin's half-cousin Sir Francis Galton pried the lid from yet another worm can with the publication of his article entitled Hereditary Talent and Character. In this essay, the gentleman scientist suggested that one could apply the principle of artificial selection to humans, just as one could in domestic animals, thereby exaggerating desirable human traits over several generations. This scientific philosophy would come to be known as eugenics, and over the subsequent years its seemingly sensible insights gained approval worldwide. In an effort to curtail the genetic pollution created by inferior genes, some governments even enacted laws authorising the forcible sterilisation of the insane, idiotic, imbecile, feeble-minded or epileptic, as well as individuals with criminal or promiscuous inclinations. Ultimately, hundreds of thousands of people were forced or coerced into sterilisation worldwide. Over 65,000 of them in the country which pioneered the eugenic effort the United States of America. From the beginning, Sir Francis Galton and his league of extraordinary eugenicists were concerned that the human race was facing an inevitable decline. They worried that advances in medicine were too successful in improving the survival and reproduction of weak individuals, thereby working at odds with natural selection. Darwin himself expressed some concern regarding such negative selection. We do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. Thus, the weak members of civilised societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man, nor could we check our sympathy, even at the urging of hard reason, without deterioration in the noblest part of our nature. The early proponents of eugenics were also distressed over the observation that the poor segments of an industrialised society tend to have more children than the well-off an effect now known as the demographic economic paradox. It was feared that this lopsided fertility would dilute the quality of the human gene pool, 
leading to the deterioration of socially valuable traits such as intelligence. Indeed, this reversion towards mediocrity was suspected by some historians to be a major contributor to the fall of the Roman Empire. The gloomy prediction of mankind's decline was dubbed dysgenics, and it was considered to be the antithesis of the eugenics movement, but it was not considered inevitable. It was believed that a society could reverse its own genetic decay by reducing breeding among the feeble-minded and increasing fertility of the affluent. The cornerstone of eugenics was that everyone has the right to be well-born, without any predisposition to avoidable genetic flaws. The 1911 edition of the Encyclopaedia Britannica looked fondly upon the philosophy, defining it as the organic betterment of the race through wise application of the laws of hereditary. Prominent people gravitated towards the idea and engaged in vigorous intellectual intercourse, including such characters as Alexander Graham Bell, Nikola Tesla, H.G. Wells, Winston Churchill, George Bernard Shaw and U.S. Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Calvin Coolidge. Supporters popularised eugenics as an opportunity to create a better world by using natural processes to elevate the human condition, both mentally and physically. The eugenicists' concerns regarding a fall-off in average intelligence were not entirely unreasonable. It had long been observed that intelligence is inheritable to a large degree, and history had illustrated that science and culture owe much of their advancement to the contributions of a few gifted people. Ingenious composers such as Beethoven and Bach advanced the art of music. Thinkers such as Pascal and Newton improved the power of mathematics, and insights from scientists such as Einstein and Hawking have further the field of physics. Deprived of any one of those men, Today's world would be a measurably poorer place. Even before modern IQ tests existed, it was evident that a population's intelligence adheres to a Gaussian distribution, or bell curve. Consequently, even a small decline in average IQ causes a sharp reduction in the number of geniuses. For instance, if the average intelligence of a community were to decline by 5 IQ points, the number of individuals in the 130-plus or gifted category would drop by 56%. A 10-point decline would result in an 83% drop. Although IQ testing is far from perfect, it is clear that even modest erosion of average IQ could severely compromise the long-term progress of a society. As a cautionary measure, many US states enacted laws as early as 1896 prohibiting marriage to anyone who was epileptic, imbecile or feeble-minded. But in 1907, eugenics truly passed the threshold from hypothesis into practice when the state of Indiana erected legislation based upon the notion that socially undesirable traits are hereditary. It shall be compulsory for each and every institution in the state, entrusted with the care of confirmed criminals, idiots, rapists and imbeciles, to appoint upon its staff, in addition to the regular institutional physician, two skilled surgeons of recognised ability, 
whose duty it shall be, in conjunction with the Chief Physician of the Institution, to examine the mental and physical condition of such inmates as are recommended by the Institutional Physician and Board of Managers. If, in the judgment of this Committee of Experts and the Board of Managers, procreation is inadvisable, and there is no probability of improvement of the mental condition of the inmate, it shall be lawful for the surgeons to perform such operation for the prevention of procreation as shall be decided safest and most effective. Although this particular law was later overturned, it is widely considered to be the world's first eugenic legislation. The sterilisation of imbeciles was put into practice, often without informing the patient of the nature of the procedure. Similar laws were soon passed elsewhere in the U.S., many of which withstood the legal gauntlet and remained in force for decades. Meanwhile, the founders of the newly formed Eugenics Record Office in New York began to amass hundreds of thousands of family pedigrees for genetic research. The organisation publicly endorsed eugenic practices and lobbied for state sterilisation acts and immigration restrictions. The group also spread their vision of genetic superiority by sponsoring a series of Fitter Families contests, which were held at state fairs throughout the US. Alongside the state's portliest pigs, swiftest horses and most majestic vegetables, American families were judged for their quality of breeding. Entrance pedigrees were reviewed, their bodies examined and their mental capacity measured. The families found to be most genetically fit were awarded a silver trophy, and any contestant scoring a B-plus or higher was awarded a bronze medal, bearing the inscription, Yea, I have a goodly heritage. The eugenics movement took another swerve for the sinister in 1924, when the state of Virginia enacted a matched set of eugenic laws. The Sterilisation Act a variation on the same sterilisation legislation being passed throughout the US, and the Racial Integrity Act, a law which felonised marriage between white persons and non-whites. In September of the same year, this shiny new legislation was challenged by a patient at the Virginia State Colony for epileptics and feeble-minded. 18-year-old Carrie Buck child to a promiscuous mother and mother to an illegitimate child refused her mandatory sterilisation and a legal challenge was arranged on her behalf. A series of appeals ultimately brought the Buck v. Bell case before the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court's ruling was delivered by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. With the apparent vindication of these myopic eugenics laws, sterilisation procedures were ordered by the thousands. Carrie Buck and her daughter Vivian were among them. It was later discovered that Carrie had become pregnant with Vivian after being raped by her foster parent's nephew, 
and that her commitment into the colony had been a gambit to preserve the family's reputation. It seems that Carrie was neither feeble-minded nor promiscuous. She was merely inconvenient. These sorts of negative eugenics policies enjoyed widespread adoption in the US and Canada throughout the 1920s and 30s, with some lawmakers contemplating plans to make welfare and unemployment relief contingent upon sterilisation. In the years leading up to the Second World War, however, the eugenic philosophy received the endorsement of the Nazis, and their racial hygiene atrocities rapidly dragged the eugenic philosophy from public favour. When Nazi leaders were put on trial for war crimes, they cited the United States as the inspiration for the 450,000 forced sterilizations they conducted. The eugenic laws in the US remained in force, however, and sterilization programs continued quietly for many years thereafter. One by one, the state laws were repealed, and by 1963, virtually all US states had dismantled their sterilisation legislation, but not before 65,000 or so imbeciles, criminals and fornicators were surgically expelled from the gene pool. As for the legal precedent of Buck v. Bell, it has yet to be officially overruled. Even with the shifts in public opinion, concerns regarding the decline of the species still remained. It was believed that certain undesirable diseases could be reduced or eliminated from humanity through well-informed mate selection, including such maladies as hypertension, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, haemophilia and certain types of cancer. In an effort to improve general quality of life, some scientists hypothesised that the ideal way to save humanity would be for healthy and attractive women to breed with men of science. Unfortunately, no orgy of intellectuals ensued. In 1980, millionaire inventor Robert Clark Graham took a similar positive eugenics approach when he established the repository for germinal choice in an underground bunker in Escondido, California. His goal was to procure and propagate the creme de la creme of genius DNA. It was his earnest hope that this institution would spawn thousands of gifted children to offset the unbridled copulation among the retrograde population. For 19 years he courted the semen of Nobel Prize laureates, prosperous scientists, Olympic gold medalists and anyone with a proven high IQ. Even as news reports decried Graham's scheme to produce a master race of superbabies, hundreds of pre-screened women made the pilgrimage to his fortress of fertility. Owing to the popularity of the repository and the stiff requirements demanded of the donors, there was never quite enough sperm on hand and the founder was forced to spend much of his time seeking brilliant men to come to his aid. Graham died in 1997, age 90, and within two years his reservoir of supersperm dried up due to lack of funding. Reports vary regarding the exact number of babies produced by the repository for germinal choice, but at least 215 were born in almost two decades of operation. Only a few of the offspring have since come forward as the products of the repository, and though they tend to exhibit intellectual and physical excellence, the sample is too small to draw any concrete conclusions. 
Time will tell whether these superbabies are secretly plotting to enslave humanity for their own diabolical ends. The breeding behaviours of humans remains of the utmost interest to geneticists today. In Israel, the Dor Yeshorim organisation was founded to provide genetic screenings for couples considering marriage. If it is discovered that both the man and the woman carry the recessive gene for Tay-Sachs disease, a genetic defect which causes a slow, painful death within a child's first five years, the couple are advised against marrying. The same process screens for several other hereditary diseases which are common among Jews, and owing to this eugenic guidance, the number of affected individuals has been reduced considerably. A similar screening system has been successful in nearly eradicating the disease thalassemia on the island of Cyprus. Such applications align with the original vision of eugenics, before it became distorted by misguided minds, voluntary, altruistic and based upon scientifically measurable criteria. Unfortunately, the imperfections in screening methods have occasionally led to bizarre, wrongful life lawsuits where disabled individuals seek compensation for their unprevented afflictions. It is only a matter of time until advances in genetic engineering place true designer babies within our grasp, and because the offspring of such offspring would receive a complement of tweaked genes, they fall well within the realm of eugenics. It seems that the eugenic philosophy of intelligent evolution is inseparable from humanity's future, and we have only just begun to open the massive ethical worm cans. Historian Daniel Kevles of Yale University suggests that eugenics is akin to the conservation of natural resources. Both can be practised horribly so as to abuse individual rights, but both can be practised wisely for the betterment of society. There is no doubt that the forced sterilisations in the name of eugenics were an indefensible trespass upon the rights of individuals. But considering the value of programs like Dor Yeshorim and the potential of such ideas as the repository for germinal choice, one must be careful not to throw out the superbaby with the bathwater. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com And now, the piece of music that's playing at the moment is entitled Nikola Tesla is my homeboy and it's by a group called Dot Communism and this came from the Podsafe Music Network. This piece of music inspired me, as I was listening to it, to find a short biography about Nikolai Tesla, as I find him to be a quite interesting and mysterious genius. The article comes from the www.teslasociety.com, which is the Tesla Memorial Society of New York. Nikola Tesla symbolises a unifying force 
and inspiration for all nations in the name of peace and science. He was a true visionary far ahead of his contemporaries in the field of scientific development. New York State and many other states in the USA proclaimed July 10, Tesla's birthday, Nikola Tesla Day. And at the time of recording, it is 11.29am, the 10th of July, 2008. Many United States congressmen gave speeches in the House of Representatives on July 10, 1990, celebrating the 134th anniversary of scientist-inventor Nikola Tesla. Senator Levine from Michigan spoke in the US Senate on the same occasion. The street sign, Nikola Tesla Corner, was recently placed on the corner of the 40th Street and 6th Avenue in Manhattan. There is a large photo of Tesla in the Statue of Liberty Museum. The Liberty Science Centre in Jersey City, New Jersey, has a daily science demonstration of the Tesla coil, creating a million volts of electricity before the spectator's eyes. Many books were written about Tesla. Prodigal Genius, The Life of Nikola Tesla by John J. O'Neill and Margaret Cheney's book Tesla, Man Out of Time has contributed significantly to his fame. A documentary film, Nikola Tesla, The Genius Who Lit the World, produced by the Tesla Memorial Society and the Nikola Tesla Museum in Belgrade, The Secret of Nikola Tesla, the BBC film, Masters of the Ionosphere, are other tributes to the great genius. Nikola Tesla was born on July 10, 1856, in Smiljan Laika, which was then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire region of Croatia. His father, Militant Tesla, was a Serbian Orthodox priest, and his mother, Junka Mandik, was an inventor in her own right of household appliances. Tesla studied at the Realschule Karlstadt in 1873, the Polytechnic Institute at Graz, Austria, and the University of Prague. At first he intended to specialise in physics and mathematics, but soon became fascinated with electricity. He began his career as an electrical engineer with a telephone company in Budapest in 1881. It was there, as Tesla was walking with a friend through the city park, that the elusive solution to the rotating magnetic field flashed through his mind. With a stick, he drew a diagram in the sand, explaining to his friend the principle of the induction motor. Before going to America, Tesla joined Continental Edison Company in Paris, where he designed dynamos. While in Strasbourg in 1883, he privately built a prototype of the induction motor and ran it successfully. Unable to interest anyone in Europe in promoting his radical device, Tesla accepted an offer to work for Thomas Edison in New York. His childhood dream was to come to America to harness the power of Niagara Falls. Young Nikola Tesla came to the United States in 1884 with an introduction letter from Charles Batchelor to Thomas Edison. I know two great men, wrote Batchelor. One is you, and the other is this young man. Tesla spent the next 59 years of his productive life living in New York. Tesla set about improving Edison's line of dynamos while working in Edison's lab in New Jersey. It was here that his divergence of opinion with Edison over direct current versus alternating current began. 
This disagreement climaxed in the War of the Currents as Edison fought a losing battle to protect his investment in direct current equipment and facilities. Tesla pointed out the inefficiency of Edison's direct current electrical powerhouses that had been built up and down the Atlantic seaboard. The secret, he felt, lay in the use of alternating current because to him all energies were cyclic. Why not build generators that would send electrical energy along distribution lines, first one way, then another, in multiple waves using the polyphase principle? Edison's lamps were weak and inefficient when supplied by direct current. This system had a severe disadvantage in that it could not be transported more than two miles due to its inability to step up to high voltage levels necessary for long distance transmission. Consequently, a direct current power station was required at two mile intervals. Direct current flows continuously in one direction. Alternating current changes direction 50 or 60 times per second and can be stepped up to very high voltage levels, minimising power loss across great distances. The future belonged to alternating current. Nikola Tesla developed polyphase alternating current systems of generators, motors and transformers and held 40 basic US patents on the system, which George Westinghouse bought determined to supply America with the Tesla system. Edison did not want to lose his DC empire, and a bitter war ensued. This was the war of the currents between AC and DC. Tesla Westinghouse ultimately emerged the victor because AC was a superior technology. It was a war won for the progress of both America and the war. Tesla introduced his motors and electrical systems in a classic paper, A New System of Alternating Current Motors and Transformers, which he delivered before the American Institute of Electrical Engineers in 1888. One of the most impressed was the industrialist and inventor George Westinghouse. One day he visited Tesla's laboratory and was amazed at what he saw. Tesla had constructed a model polyphase system consisting of an alternating current dynamo, step-up and step-down transformers, and an AC motor at the other end. The perfect partnership between Tesla and Westinghouse for the nationwide use of electricity in America had begun. In February 1882, Tesla discovered the rotating magnetic field, a fundamental principle in physics and the basis of nearly all devices that use alternating current. Tesla brilliantly adapted the principle of rotating magnetic field for the construction of alternating current induction motors and the polyphase system for the generation, transmission, distribution and use of electrical power. Tesla's AC induction motor is widely used throughout the world in industry and household appliances. It started the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the century. Electricity today is generated, transmitted and converted to mechanical power by means of his inventions. Tesla's greatest achievement is his polyphase alternating current system, which today is lighting the entire globe. Tesla astonished the world by demonstrating the wonders of alternating current electricity at the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. Alternating current became standard power in the 20th century. This accomplishment changed the world. 
He designed the first hydroelectric power plant in Niagara Falls in 1895, which was the final victory of alternating current. The achievement was covered widely in the world press, and Tesla was praised as a hero worldwide. Tesla was a pioneer in many fields. The Tesla coil, which he invented in 1891, is widely used today in radio and television sets and other electronic equipment. That year also marked the date of Tesla's United States citizenship. His alternating current induction motor is considered one of the ten greatest discoveries of all time. Among his discoveries are the fluorescent light, a laser beam, wireless communication, wireless transmission of electrical energy, remote control, robotics, Tesla's turbines and vertical takeoff aircraft. Tesla is the father of the radio and the modern electrical transmission system. He registered over 700 patents worldwide. His vision included exploration of solar energy and the power of the sea. He foresaw interplanetary communications and satellites. The Century magazine published Tesla's Principles of Telegraphy Without Wires, popularising scientific lectures given before Franklin Institute in February 1893. The Electrical Review in 1896 published X-rays of a man, made by Tesla, with X-ray tubes of his own design. They appeared at the same time as when Rowentgen announced his discovery of X-rays. Tesla never attempted to proclaim priority. Rowentgen congratulated Tesla on his sophisticated X-ray pictures, and Tesla even wrote Rowentgen's name on one of his films. Tesla's countless experiments included work on a carbon button lamp, on the power of electrical resonance, and on various types of lightning. Tesla invented the special vacuum tube which emitted light to be used in photography. The breadth of his inventions is demonstrated by his patents for a bladeless steam turbine based on a spiral flow principle. Tesla also patented a pump design to operate at extremely high temperature. Nikola Tesla patented the basic system of radio in 1896. He published schematic diagrams describing all the basic elements of the radio transmitter, which was later used by Marconi. In 1896, Tesla constructed an instrument to receive radio waves. He experimented with this device and transmitted radio waves from his laboratory on South Fifth Avenue to the Gerlach Hotel at 27th Street in Manhattan. The device had a magnet which gave off intense magnetic fields up to 20,000 lines per centimetre. The radio device clearly establishes his priority in the discovery of radio. The shipboard quench spark transmitter, produced by the Lowenstein Radio Company and licensed under Nikola Tesla Company patents, was installed on the US naval vessels prior to World War I. In December 1901, Marconi established wireless communication between Britain and the United States, earning him the Nobel Prize in 1909. But much of Marconi's work was not original. In 1864, James Maxwell theorised electromagnetic waves. In 1887, Heinrich Hertz proved Maxwell's theories. Later, Sir Olivier Lodge extended the Hertz prototype system, the Brandley coherer increased the distances messages could be transmitted. The coherer was perfected by Marconi. However, the heart of radio transmission is based upon four tuned circuits for transmitting and receiving. 
It is Tesla's original concept, demonstrated in his famous lecture at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia in 1893. The four circuits, used in two pairs, are still a fundamental part of all radio and television equipment. The United States Supreme Court in 1943 held Marconi's most important patent invalid, recognising Tesla's more significant contribution as the inventor of radio technology. Tesla built an experimental station in Colorado Springs in 1899 to experiment with high voltage, high frequency electricity and other phenomena. When the Colorado Springs Tesla coil magnifying transmitter was energised, it created sparks 30 feet long. From the outside antenna, these sparks could be seen from a distance of 10 miles. From this laboratory, Tesla generated and sent out wireless waves which mediated energy without wires for miles. In Colorado Springs, where he stayed from May 1899 until 1900, Tesla made what he regarded as his most important discovery, terrestrial stationary waves. By this discovery, he proved that the Earth could be used as a conductor and would be as responsive as a tuning fork to electrical vibrations of a certain frequency. He also lighted 200 lamps without wires from a distance of 25 miles and created man-made lightning. At one time he was certain he had received signals from another planet in his Colorado laboratory, a claim that was met with disbelief in some scientific journals. The old Waldorf Astoria was the residence of Nikola Tesla for many years. He lived there when he was at the height of his financial and intellectual power. Tesla organised elaborate dinners, inviting famous people who later witnessed spectacular electrical experiments in his laboratory. Financially supported by J. Pierpont Morgan, Tesla built the Wardenclyffe Laboratory and its famous transmitting tower in Shoreham, Long Island, between 1901 and 1905. This huge landmark was 187 feet high, capped by a 68-foot copper dome which housed the magnifying transmitter. It was planned to be the first broadcast system, transmitting both signals and power without wires to any point on the globe. The huge magnifying transmitter discharging high-frequency electricity would turn the Earth into a gigantic dynamo, which would project its electricity in unlimited amounts anywhere in the world. Tesla's concept of wireless electricity was used to power ocean liners, destroy warships, run industry and transportation and send communications instantaneously all over the world. To stimulate the public's imagination, Tesla suggested that this wireless power could even be used for interplanetary communication. If Tesla were confident to reach Mars, how much less difficult to reach Paris? Many newspapers and periodicals interviewed Tesla and described his new system for supplying wireless power to run all the Earth's industry. Because of a dispute between Morgan and Tesla as to the final use of the tower, Morgan withdrew his funds. The financier's classic comment was, If anyone can draw on the power, where do we put the meter? The erected but incomplete tower was demolished in 1917 for security reasons in wartime. The site where the Wardenclyffe Tower stood still exists, with its 100 feet deep foundation still intact. 
Tesla's laboratory, designed by Stanford White in 1901, is today still in good condition and is graced with a bicentennial plaque. Tesla lectured to the scientific community on his inventions in New York, Philadelphia and St. Louis, and before scientific organisations in both England and France in 1892. Tesla's lectures and writings of the 1890s aroused wide admiration among contemporaries, popularised his inventions and inspired untold numbers of younger men to enter the new field of radio and electrical science. Nikola Tesla was one of the most celebrated personalities in the American press in this century. According to Life magazine's special issue of September 1997, Tesla is among the 100 most famous people of the last thousand years. He is one of the great men who divert the stream of human history. Tesla's celebrity was in its height at the turn of the century. His discoveries, inventions and vision had widespread acceptance by the public, the scientific community and American press. Tesla's discoveries had extensive coverage in the scientific journals, the daily and weekly press, as well as in the foremost literary and intellectual publications of the day. He was the superstar. Tesla wrote many autobiographical articles for the prominent journal Electrical Experimenter, collected in the book My Inventions. Tesla was gifted with intense powers of visualisation and exceptional memory from early youth. He was able to fully construct, develop and perfect his inventions completely in his mind before committing them to paper. According to Hugo Gernsbach, Tesla was possessed of a striking physical appearance, over six feet tall with deep-set eyes and a stately manner. His impressions of Tesla were of a man endowed with remarkable physical and mental freshness, ready to surprise the world with more and more inventions as he grew older. A lifelong bachelor, he led a somewhat isolated existence, devoting his full energies to science. In 1894, he was given honorary doctoral degrees by Columbia and Yale University and the Elliott Crescent Medal by the Franklin Institute. In 1934, the city of Philadelphia awarded him the John Scott Medal for his polyphase power system. He was an honorary member of the National Electric Light Association and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. On one occasion, he turned down an invitation from Kaiser Wilhelm II to come to Germany to demonstrate his experiments and to receive a high decoration. In 1915, a New York Times article announced that Tesla and Edison were to share the Nobel Prize for Physics. Oddly, neither man received the prize, the reason being unclear. It was rumoured that Tesla refused the prize because he would not share with Edison and because Marconi had already received his. On his 75th birthday in 1931, the inventor appeared on the cover of Time magazine. On this occasion, Tesla received congratulatory letters from more than 70 pioneers in science and engineering, including Albert Einstein and Mark Twain. These letters were mounted and presented to Tesla in the form of a testimonial volume. Tesla died on January 7, 1943, in the Hotel New Yorker, where he had lived for the last ten years of his life. Room 3327 on the 33rd floor is the two-room suite he occupied. 
a state funeral was held at St John the Divine Cathedral in New York City. Telegrams of condolence were received from many notables, including the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and Vice President Wallace. Over 2,000 people attended, including several Nobel laureates. He was cremated in Ardsley on the Hudson, New York. His ashes were interned in a golden sphere, Tesla's favourite shape, on permanent display at the Tesla Museum in Belgrade, along with his death mask. In his speech presenting Tesla with the Edison Medal, Vice President Behrend of the Institute of Electrical Engineers eloquently expressed the following. Were we to seize and eliminate from our industrial world the result of Mr Tesla's work, the wheels of industry would cease to turn, our electric cars and trains would stop, our towns would be dark and our mills would be idle and dead. His name marks an epoch in the advance of electrical science. Mr. Behrend ended his speech with a paraphrase of the Pope's lines on Newton. Nature and nature's laws lay hid by night. God said, let Tesla be, and all was light. In the introduction to the podcast today, I said I was going to do an article about Stone Age art caves that may have been concert halls, and a story about storm warning for cloud computing. I've decided to leave those until the next episode, as we're running out of time with this episode. I like to keep the podcast under 100 megabytes, because that's the limit on the talks you upload at the quality that I like to use. So, if you can bear with me, you'll get both of those stories in episode 41 of Origins. Hello. 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 A desperate German woman finally called emergency services to rescue her after a friend visiting her at her apartment talked for 30 hours straight, authorities said today. A police spokesman in the western city of Speyer confirmed reports about the case in which the guest rambled on about personal problems and became increasingly intoxicated until the 48-year-old dialed the emergency hotline. After an unbelievable 30 hours and failed attempts to encourage the guest to leave last Saturday, the woman did not know what else to do but call an ambulance, the police said. When the paramedics refused to carry the guest out of the apartment, the woman called the police, who picked up the friend and drove her home. The spokesman said the guest would face no criminal charges. And to finish off, a story from Japan. The reputation of the Japanese for being humble is falling to Western norms among primary school parents, according to a June dispatch from Tokyo in the Times of London. Across Japan, teachers are reporting an astonishing change in the character of parents as they push for their children's rights.
In one school's performance of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there were 25 Snow Whites as monster parents bullied officials into admitting that it was not fair to have just one kid in the title role. Well, that concludes episode 40 of Origins. If you do get a chance, don't forget my other podcast, Mysteries Abound, is now on iTunes. I hope to see you all again in episode 41. Bye for now. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.